there or see more information about it right there. This morning, we're going to continue our study of the song, the hymn, Amazing Grace. John Newton was a man, the man that wrote that hymn, and he wrote that hymn in 1773, but 25 years before he wrote the song, Amazing Grace, his life was extremely different. He was part of a crew of a cargo ship. The ship's name was the Greyhound. And it was March 21st, 1748. And the Greyhound was on its way back to England from the west coast of Africa with a ship full of goods that they had collected there and bought there. In the middle of the night, John Newton, who was 22 years old at the time, was asleep in his room below deck. And it's a long story to even how he became part of the crew. A lot of bad decisions on his part that the Lord rescued him out of and he just continued to make horrible, destructive, unkind decisions. But he was asleep in his room in the middle of the night as their ship sails across the ocean back towards England and all of a sudden this violent, aggressive storm stirs up on the sea. And you can see a picture here. This is a stained glass picture that is found in Only Church, which is the church John Newton pastored in England, a little town outside of London, that they've put different stained glass images of his story. And this is there in the church. But that's their ship in the middle of the storm. And while they're sitting in the middle of the storm, John Newton's awakened by the sound of these really strong waves crashing against the ship over and over, huge waves hitting this wooden ship. And the waves were hitting so hard and so often they broke holes in the side of the ship. And water was pouring in, pouring in to this, to this huge cargo ship. So Newton and the other crew members, they started to take buckets, and they were trying to get the water out as fast as they could. They had hand pumps to pump the water out as fast as they could. But the more and more they tried, the more and more water kept flowing in. And at one point, the crew was just trying to make a survival plan. What are we going to do? How are we going to figure this out? And Newton blurted out in the moment. They had come up with this plan, and John Newton blurted out in that moment, well, if this will not do, the Lord have mercy on us. And as soon as those words came out of John Newton's mouth, he was shocked at his own words. He wrote later in his life about that experience, and he talks about being shocked that the name of the Lord would even come out of his mouth in a good way. He was shocked that he even said the word mercy. He hadn't thought about mercy in years at that point. He'd been living a life that went wherever his desires wanted to go, He'd been living a life that was completely away from the Lord and away from God's people. Well, the crew survived that storm. And for the next few weeks, it, they still had to endure more storms and starvation, the risk of starvation, because all of their food supplies were washed overboard when the storm was bashing holes in the side of their ship. The ship finally landed in Ireland later in April. You can imagine being in that kind of situation for a month or more. And after they landed in Ireland, every year after that, when it came to around March 21st of each year, John Newton would look back and he would always write about that day in his journal. He would call that day the great day of turning for him. The great day of turning. He would always reflect on that day as that's the day the Lord saved my life. And that's the day the Lord began the real work of saving my soul. Last week when we started this series on Amazing Grace, we were starting this series because this year, this month, marks the 250th anniversary of that hymn being written. And it was originally known as, not as Amazing Grace, 
but as faith's review and expectation. Amazing grace rolls off the tongue a little bit smoother, for sure. But this is easily the most popular, the most long-lasting hymn of all time. But the reason we're studying that song is because we don't want to just people, be people that know the melody and know the words. We want to be people that know and feel and experience the meaning of that song. The song tells the story of John Newton's life, but more importantly, the song tells the story of the gospel. The song tells the story of every person who has put their faith in Christ. So for the next few weeks, we're going to look at each verse of the hymn. And this week we're coming to first, verse 1, the most famous verse of the song, where it says, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. We're going to see that God's grace saves. His grace is a grace that saves, and we're going to see that clearly from the passage you've already heard parts from, from 1 Timothy chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there with me. 1 Timothy chapter 1. It's in the New Testament, and if you don't have a Bible but want to use the blue Bible in front of you, it's on page 991. 991. As we walk through this short paragraph, we're going to look at verses 12 through 17. We're going to see who God's grace saves how God's grace saves, and why God's grace saves. All connecting us to this hymn and to our lives. So let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 12. The Apostle Paul writes, being led by the Holy Spirit, he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost... Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So the first thing we're going to see, like I mentioned, is who grace saves. Who grace saves. Like Newton, the apostle Paul never forgot his past. He never forgot what God's grace had rescued him from. And the more he remembered it, the more grateful he became. You see that in the very beginning of what we read. Look at verse 12 with me. Paul writes, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Don't hear this as Paul bragging about how strong and faithful he is as a pastor or as a Christian. We know he's not bragging because he's not thanking himself for being this way. 
He's thanking Christ for making him this way. I thank him who has given me strength, he writes. At the time Paul wrote this letter, he had a really long track record of boldly and joyfully preaching the gospel and encouraging other Christians and obeying the Lord, not perfectly, but consistently. But Paul knows very well, and he wants us to know that he wasn't always that way. That's why he says in verse 13, he writes, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. Though formerly. So he's saying, this is who I am now, but I wasn't always this way. This is who I am now, but this isn't who I've always been. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was an insolent opponent. Some of you are used to Paul's story. You've heard it. You've read about it in Acts. You've read his letters. And so you're used to who Paul was and who Paul became and how the Lord changed him. And so it doesn't hit us fresh all the time. But if you don't know, and even if you do, I want you to think about this with me. When you first meet Paul in the Bible, in the book of Acts, his name is not Paul, it's Saul. And he's doing something very different than writing letters to Christians to help them walk with the Lord. Very different. He's holding, when you first meet him, the very first time you see him, he's holding jackets for a mob of people that are throwing stones at a Christian named Stephen to kill him. Paul's holding their jackets so they can do this. He goes on to be a man who drags Christians away from their homes and families and throws them in prison, not because they did anything illegal, but because they love Jesus and preach the gospel and believe what the gospel says. He threatened to kill anyone that lived and preached the good news of Jesus. His whole life was defined by opposing Jesus, pushing back on Jesus, turning his back on Jesus through his words because he was a blasphemer, through his deeds because he was a persecutor, he says. Even through his thoughts and his feelings, he was an insolent opponent. John's, John Newton's life looked different than Paul's, but he was opposed to Jesus just like Paul was. Growing up, though, John Newton's mom taught him the Bible faithfully as a little boy. She would teach him over and over. She taught him verses. She had him memorize catechism. She taught him hymns by Isaac Watts and other famous hymn writers of the day. But John Newton's mom passed away when he was 11 years old. And from that point on, his dad, who was a ship captain, his dad brought him in to that business. And that led him down a path to where his life became worse and worse and darker and darker. His attitudes and his habits and his decisions were further and further away from the Lord. He writes later, you can read letters and, and things that he's written. He describes himself as a person who tried to find new ways to disobey God. He said, I was one who invented ways to sin. And he would mock and laugh at anyone who even talked about faith in the Lord or talked about Jesus. Your life may look nothing like Paul's did. Your life may look nothing like John Newton's did, or maybe it does, before God saved them. You may look like a really good person compared to them. But the truth is, sin is sin. Rebellion against God is rebellion against God. 
Disobedience to God is disobedience to God. No matter how good you or I may think we look compared to someone else, we all have an evil within our hearts called sin. We all have this natural bent away from the Lord and how he wants us to live. And it's not just a behavior problem. It's not just, hey, you and I do these bad things or we don't do good things. Let's just switch that and we'll be good. It's a, it's a heart problem. It's a soul problem. The reason this truth matters is because we will not understand why God's grace is so amazing if we don't see how hopeless and needy we are without it. God's grace will seem dull and boring and lifeless if we think we were pretty good on our own. God just brought us the final 10%. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, a rebel like me, an evil person like me. And the only reason any of us are not as evil as we could possibly be is because of the grace of God. This is not about an exaggerated negative view of ourselves. Might have come in here this morning hoping like for like a, a boost, a jolt, and I'm giving you the opposite. This is only part of the story, only part of the equation here. So this isn't about an exaggerated negative view of ourselves. It's about an accurate view of ourselves. It's about seeing who we really are that, like John Newton says in his song, we're blind. We don't see God. We don't see ourselves. We don't see the world rightly. We're lost. We're not walking down the good path the Lord has designed for us to walk down without Jesus. On our own, we're broken, we're dead in our sin, we're separated from God, and we only deserve his punishment, his judgment. Even worse, no one in this room has the ability to fix it. None of us can fix this problem we each have for ourselves or for anybody else for that matter. But the good news is, the description I just gave you is the exact kind of person grace is for. This is who grace is for. And that's what, that's what we see next. This leads us to from who grace saves to how grace saves. How grace saves. We know our sin. We see our separation from God like what Paul describes and Newton describes and we see and sense in our own hearts. But we know it's not the end of the story. We know it's not the full message. Because Paul writes, that's who I was formerly. That's not who I am now. That's who I was, but that's not who I am in anymore. So what made the difference? What caused him to have such a change? If we don't have the power to fix ourselves, if we don't have the power to get rid of our own sin, then what can take somebody like Paul who hated Jesus and hated his followers and turn him into someone that followed Jesus and loved his followers? What can do that? Well, it's not so much a what as it is a who. And Paul makes that really clear in the second part of verse 13. Look there with me. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. That's the phrase. But I received 
mercy. Paul doesn't write, but I went on a journey of self-improvement and turned my life around. Paul doesn't write, but I turned over a new leaf and became a more positive person. Paul doesn't write, but I got into church and found religion and that changed me. Paul doesn't write anything about what he did. But I received mercy. This is what makes the difference. This is what changed the course of Paul's life. This is what transformed and saved his soul and the soul of every person that puts their faith in Jesus Christ. But I received mercy. He didn't earn the solution. He didn't find it himself. He received it. He was given it. In reality, from a human perspective, there's no hope for a person like Paul. From a human perspective, why would you ever forgive a man who wanted to murder Christians? Humanly speaking, there's no hope for people like me and you. If, if just humanly speaking, there's no hope for us. If it was just up to us and we had to find the solution. But the phrase here, but I received mercy. It shows none of us are beyond the reach of God's mercy. None of us are. No one is. And Paul explains this. Look again at what he says in verse 14. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. There's our word, grace, amazing grace. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. That phrase, overflowed, God's grace was abundant. It was super abundant. It was more than enough. God had an overwhelming amount of grace for Paul. The truth is, God had more grace than Paul had sin. It's still true today. God has more grace than you have sin in your heart and in your life. We sang it earlier today, we sang earlier this morning. We sang his mercy is more. Praise the Lord, his mercy is more. That song was inspired by a letter that John Newton wrote. His friend was struggling with his own sin, struggling with doubts, and John Newton wrote to him, our sins are many, but his mercies are more. Our sins are great, but his righteousness is greater. We are weak, but he is powerful. The key point of all this comes at the end of verse 14. When he says, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Up to this point, last week, and this week, the word grace may have sounded to you just some, like some kind of powerful force of niceness. Might, might sound a little abstract or just some kind of spiritual force that, that moves around the world. Maybe it's hard to understand because we throw around the word grace a lot in churches. And even in the, in the culture, you'll hear the, hear, you'll hear the word grace. But what grace is, when you see from these last few words that are in Christ Jesus, grace is... The saving action of Jesus Christ. The rescuing action of Jesus. We can't talk about grace without talking about Jesus. Because grace comes from Jesus. If grace, if Jesus doesn't exist, grace doesn't exist. 
Grace is Jesus forgiving us, saving us, giving us eternal life when we don't deserve it at all. And it's seen even more clearly with what Paul says next. He's like taking us deeper and deeper and deeper into this truth. Look at verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. So he's saying, what I'm about to tell you, we should all agree is true. What I'm about to tell you, everyone should accept and welcome this truth. Here it is. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. This is the, the center of this section of verses. This is the core of the whole deal. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. This is, this is how God's grace saves. This is why God's grace is amazing. So if, if your heart feels dull to this, just take this in phrase by phrase for a second. Christ Jesus came into the world. This is why he showed up on earth. This is why he was born to Joseph and Mary in Bethlehem. This is why he left heaven to come to earth. This is his mission. Christ Jesus, the Son of God, the King of Kings, came into the world, the normal, messy, sinful, broken world. Christ Jesus came into the world, next phrase, to save sinners. He came into the world to save sinners. Jesus came to search out lost sinners and show them the way to salvation. He came to rescue those who believe the lies of sin and bring them to the truth. He came to revive those whose souls are dead and give them eternal life. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And you hear this truth all over the Bible. In Matthew chapter 1, the angel tells Mary and Joseph about their, new, their baby boy. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus himself says, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Romans chapter 5, God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. This is how Jesus saves. He doesn't save in response to you and I cleaning ourselves up. He doesn't save in response to not you coming to him, but maybe he'll come to you if he feels like it. He doesn't save in response to you got to first prove how sorry you are, and then I'll talk about forgiving you. No, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So if you feel this morning overwhelmed by guilt and shame, if you feel weighed down by the guilt of your sin against God, maybe as we work through that first point of who grace saves and you saw the way you have opposed Jesus, you saw what you've done or what you've left undone, you saw the ways that your heart is bent away from God and that feels a burden, a heavy weight on you, see, as Paul says, the overflowing grace of Jesus. If your sin is overwhelming, let God's grace be overflowing to you. If you feel that burden and that weight, that is a good sign of God's grace at work in your life to show you 
Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So if you're a sinner, there's hope. He came into the world. He lived. He died. He rose again. He sits in heaven right now because he's still saving sinners. All you and I do is receive his mercy. You trust him and receive what he's done for you. I've used this analogy before, I think, but some of you that have had a professional person come clean your house, some of you that I've talked to, as this comes up in conversation, you talk about, yeah, I'm having somebody clean my house, but I need to go get it straightened up before they come over to clean. You got to clean your house before somebody comes to clean your house? Well, I don't want them to think it's too dirty. Well, let them clean your house. But we feel this, I got to clean a little bit before I have somebody come in really deep clean. And I think some of us approach the Lord the same way. Well, let me kind of clean myself up a little bit, and then I'll come to him. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, people who were completely unclean, people who were completely dead in their sin, people who were completely separated from him. You don't have to take any steps towards him before he'll take a step towards you. He's already taken and done all the work that needs to be done for you to come to him. When he was hanging on the cross, some of his final words were, it is finished. There's no more work left to be done. You come to him and you receive his mercy and you receive his grace and your sins are cast as far as the east is from the west. They're thrown into the bottom of the ocean, never to be brought up again, past, present, and future. Isn't God's grace amazing? Who, who else would do this? I would, I would not do this for another human being if you really tested me on it. But the Lord, who is perfect and holy and spotless and righteous and just and all-powerful and all-knowing, he was not obligated to do this. But Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So before we go to the, the, the last point this morning, see how those first two are connected. Who grace saves and how grace saves. Those two go together because the more clearly we see our sin, the more clearly we're going to see our Savior. The deeper understanding we have of our need of grace, the deeper appreciation we will have for that grace that Jesus shows us. So we've seen who this is for. We've seen how God saves. But lastly, we're going to answer the question, why is God gracious like this? Why grace saves is the last point. Paul's going to show us all this that the Lord did was not just for his benefit. Much bigger than him, much broader than him. Look with me at chapter 1, verse 16. But I received mercy for this reason. For this reason, here's why. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. For I received mercy, same phrase he used up in verse 14, verse 13. He says it again, but I received mercy for this reason. 
The Lord showed his amazing grace to Paul for your benefit, for my benefit, for your good, for my good. He says it was that Jesus Christ, that in me, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example, an example, a model, a picture for those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Grace saves, and grace, God's grace saved Paul to give a powerful example of the patience of Jesus. The saving work of God's grace in Paul's life shouts to us across all the years between then and now. Paul shouts to us, and he's saying, if Jesus had enough grace for me, the worst sinner, as he sees himself, then surely he has enough grace for you. If Jesus was patient with me and saved me, Surely, he is patient with you and will save you. This truth is, is meant to bring deep encouragement for your own heart, for your own soul. But it's also meant to bring you some encouragement for other people that come to your mind. For those of you that already have trusted Christ, the Lord has saved you. The Lord has shown you his amazing grace and saved you. There's people in your life who don't yet know the amazing grace of Jesus. There's people in your life who are still blind and lost without him. Hear the encouragement that Paul's writing. Jesus has displayed his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Keep praying for those people. We've talked about before as a church, us just identifying one person we know that doesn't know Christ and praying for them every day that the Lord would save them. One person. And I know you pray and you pray and you pray and then you kind of grow tired of praying because it doesn't seem like the Lord is doing anything. Remember Jesus' perfect patience. Keep praying. Keep looking for ways to tell them about Jesus because God's arm is not too short to reach them. Well, maybe they've just run too far. You can't run too far. But his grace can't bring you back. His grace is not too weak to rescue them. There's no shortage of mercy in God's kingdom. The grace of God, the mercy of God reaches down to the lowest of the low. And anyone, anyone who's looking for mercy and grace will find it in Christ. Paul's teaching us here through his own story that the Lord shows grace in this way. And he's teaching us this so that we'll know, as author Jerry Bridges writes, no one's so bad that they are beyond the reach of God's grace. And no one's so good that they are beyond the need of God's grace. So wherever you see yourself on that spectrum, you're good, you don't really need God's grace, you don't need him to forgive you, you feel like you're doing this pretty well, or you feel like you're so bad there's no way the Lord would ever forgive you. Neither thought is true. Don't believe everything you think. Trust what the Lord says in his word. No one is so bad they are beyond the reach of God's grace, and no one is so good. They're beyond the need of God's grace. Jesus' patience is perfect. And he is being patient right now to give some of you the opportunity to come to him. To confess your sin. To receive his mercy. That can happen today. Just maybe seems like a normal Sunday, normal church service, no big deal. It's not as flashy or whatever as you thought. God does work like this in just the normal, mundane moments of life. You can trust Christ and receive his mercy today. And for all that respond to Christ in this way, 
the only response in light of all that we've seen this morning is worship. It's praise. It's lifting high the name of Jesus. And that's what Paul does. It's almost like as you're reading through this, Paul's been rehearsing his past. He's been thinking about what the Lord has done, and he can't help but just praise him. He says in verse 17, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The eternal God, who is the king of the universe, whose power created the galaxies, who exist above time and space, that God has graciously decided to stoop down and extend to sinners like me and like you a salvation that cannot be found anywhere else. There is no other source of grace but Jesus Christ. And the realization of how desperate our situation was, and yet how generous God is towards us, causes us to bow before him and say, glory and honor to you forever and ever. God's grace saves. He saves sinners. He saves sinners through Jesus. He saves sinners through Jesus to show his patience and spark his praise. And some of you are saying, I know everything you've said up to this point. You did not tell me one new thing. What's the big deal? Why is this so amazing? Well, you need to, we all need to, like Paul did, like John Newton did, we need to remember. We need to remember what it was like when we didn't believe. You need to remember the grace God has shown you over and over. John Newton was so stuck on and so passionate about remembering that in his study, I showed you a picture of his house last week where he lived in Olney. And in his study, in the attic of that house was his study, he had this plaque put above the fireplace. And on this plaque, there were two verses. The plaque is still there in the house today. You can see it above the fireplace there. You can't see the verses, but I'll, one of them's from Isaiah and one of them's from the book of Deuteronomy. And it's Deuteronomy 15, 15. And that verse says this. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. He put that in his study so he would see it every day. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Of course, that's written about the people of Israel, but Newton and us and Paul, if you trust Christ, you have the same story. You shall remember that you were a blasphemer and persecutor, an insolent opponent, or you shall remember that you were a rebel, you were a sinner, but the Lord your God, he's shown you mercy. He's redeemed you. John Newton kept this truth in front of him every day of his life, even until his very last days. I'll tell you more about his story as we go through this series, but some of his most famous lines come from things he said at the very end of his life. His friend William Jay was visiting him because he was about to pass away. And as they were talking, John Newton said to him, My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things that I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. He'd forgotten a lot, his sight was, was failing, his health was failing. But he said, I remember two things. 
that Christ is a great, that I'm a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. This is why grace is amazing.